one evening and uh, there was no dinner for me. So I went down to the eatery near where I stay and uh, wanted to take an order, you know, do some takeaway from this eatery. And um, I walked in, it was about one third empty. It was, uh, there were some tables filled with people, but by and large, the, the restaurant was about, sorry, two thirds empty. It's only about one third filled. So I went to the cashier and I said, I'd like to uh, take away something. And so the lady took down my order. So I, I, I sat down on the table near the cashier and I just sat there and wait. Uh, I waited and I waited. Then not long after, there was one lady who came in and also did a takeaway. And before that, or, or shortly after that, another lady came in and also did another takeaway. And these two ladies sat at different tables uh, close to where I was sitting, near the cashier. So I waited and waited and waited. And then as I was observing the people there, I realized that some of the tables were being served and some of those people who were being served came after me. Right? So I was a little bit patient. So I went up to the cashier and said, excuse me, I've been waiting about 15 minutes. You know, um, I don't think my order is very complicated. Um, you please check. So she disappeared, went into the kitchen and came back a minute later and said, oh, okay, okay, it's, it's on the way. So I went back to sit down and I waited and I waited. And then before long, the lady who came after me, who did the takeaway order, received the order and then she left. And shortly after that, the other lady who, took the, who had a takeaway order, took an order and then she left. So I was, well, quite agitated. So after about 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes or so, I, I went up to the cashier and then I got uh, pretty upset and I I said to her, excuse me, uh, I, I know I, I, don't sound like I, want to I don't sound like I want to complain, but, but you know, I, I must let you know that I've been waiting for the last 20, 25 minutes and uh, I haven't got my order yet. So I think she, she saw the look on my face. I was trying to restrain my anger. And as a result, she disappeared again and then she came out a minute later and said, oh, okay, uh, sorry, uh, we, we, we put your order on the wrong stack in the kitchen, you know, so the chef got it wrong. So anyway, uh, she said sorry, but I don't think she was. I don't think she was. Okay? In any event, I waited for another five minutes. My order came and I left. I vowed in my heart never to go back to that restaurant again. Anyway, the food was lousy. I was indignant. I was upset. And as I thought about this incident preparing for this, this message, I, I asked myself, why, why was I angry? Well, it's quite obvious, right, to all of us. Why, why so unfair? I, know I, I came first. I was among some of the early ones, and, and people who came after me got served before me. So that that's, doesn't make sense. It doesn't sound right. So there was a sense of injustice. But as I thought a bit more, as I thought about this a bit more, I, I realized that the injustice was done towards me. So the real reason for my anger was the offence which the long wait caused to my ego. When we look at the Gospels, we see quite a few instances when Jesus was angry and he was indignant. Today is the first of a series of three messages on this subject. Next week, we will look at the famous incident in Matthew 21 where Jesus overturned the tables and drove out the merchants who were desecrating the temple. And following that, we will examine an episode in Matthew, Mark chapter 10, where Jesus was upset, not with anyone else, but with his disciples 
because the disciples tried to stop some people from bringing children to him for blessing. Now, as you read those incidents, you realize that there's another side to the image of a gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The image of a sentimental Jesus who carries babies, who blesses children, and who weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. And we see a Jesus, a more macho-looking Jesus, well, maybe not macho-looking, but certainly macho-looking in, in, in attitude, a, a, a Jesus who cracked the whip to drive out money changers and merchants in the temple, who had strong words at some of the religious leaders of the time, as we will see later, and who even rebuked his own disciple, Simon Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. And like me, in the recent incident I just described, Jesus was offended and indignant. But unlike me, his offense was not personal in nature. It had nothing to do with his ego. It came from his jealousy for the glory of the Father and his anger at the hardness of the religious people's hearts and at the oppression of sin upon ordinary people, the crowds that he took pity on. Our text this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. Let me read it to you, see it on the slide. Getting on, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep, and falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. We see a huge contrast in this story. First of all, we see the blindness of the Jewish leaders. Look at the setting of this passage. It was in a synagogue, a Sabbath. You know this, the synagogue, this, this, is, this, this was the place where Jews met for worship every Sabbath. And it was the heart, the center of their religious life. Historians tell us that there were around 480 synagogues in Jerusalem in the first century AD. And somewhere in one of those 480 synagogues, there was a man with a withered hand. Bill tells us that it was his right hand that was deformed, and this man was believed to be a stonemason, some kind of a builder, a skilled builder. And most likely, he met with an accident while working with heavy stones, and as a result, he lost his job. Why was he in the synagogue? Maybe he was just fulfilling his religious duty to assemble with other Jews, other pious Jews in the synagogue every Sabbath. Maybe he wanted to be healed so that he could return to work and earn a living. Notice that it was the Pharisees who straight away connected Jesus and this man, this man with the deformed right hand. Before Jesus actually did anything, it was the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who asked Jesus if it was lawful to heal 
on the Sabbath. They knew it was so much in Jesus' character that he could not cease suffering and not do something about it. But at the same time, while giving credit to Jesus, they were also looking for a reason to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath law. Let's, let's take a step back and, and, and put this, this story, this text in its context. Jews, the Jewish leaders, Jesus, and there was a conflict between them, as this passage makes very clear. Now, the relationship between them did not start that way. Initially, when Jesus began his ministry, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees were filled with admiration at what Jesus was doing. He was healing the sick, he was teaching the multitudes, he spoke to them profound truths, and they were moved by his compassion and his love and his teaching. And some of the leaders even invited Jesus to their houses for dinner, which is usually a sign of friendship. But, but, when Jesus began to claim authority to forgive sins, just a few chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 9, they thought that he was blasphemed. And shortly after that, he made himself a friend of sinners and tax collectors, eating and drinking with them in Matthew's house. Matthew was a tax collector. And in doing so, what he did was to challenge the leader's long-cherished ideas of what it means to be pure and righteous before God. And so the relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders deteriorated. And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 31, after Jesus healed a demon-possessed man, the leaders were so annoyed, or maybe the, the better word to describe the reaction was threatened. They were so threatened that they attributed Jesus' miracle of healing to the devil himself. It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This was their conclusion when they saw Jesus' miracle of healing. And by the time we reach Matthew 12, the relationship between Jesus and the religious leaders was already irreparable. And in the earlier part of this chapter, the, the disciples of Jesus were hungry and they plucked grains from the grain fields on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were alarmed at such audacity. And they looked at Jesus and told him, Hello, Jesus, it's, it's the Sabbath, you know. How could your disciples be plucking grain? That's work. And that's total disregard for the holy ordinance of the Sabbath. And again, here in this text in Matthew chapter 12, the one that we're looking at this morning, it was the Sabbath issue once more. Matthew 12, 14 tells us that after this incident, the Pharisees began to plot Jesus' death. You might ask yourself, why were the Pharisees so hung up over Sabbath to the point that they wanted to plot Jesus' death after this incident? You know, during his time, during the time of Jesus, Sabbath observance had become a tyranny. It was oppressive because there were so many rules and regulations. It didn't start that way. Initially, the Jewish rabbis, the teachers of the law, wanted to distill the teaching of the law, the Torah, the laws of Moses, into guidance, general guidance to help ordinary people, ordinary Jews live their lives. So they developed a series of rules and regulations, which after generations of being passed down by word of mouth, became written down as the book of Jewish legal theory known as the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is, is a 
massive book. The English translation apparently has over 800 pages. And in order to help ordinary Jews understand the Mishnah, the scribes, the religious leaders and teachers wrote a commentary known as the Talmud. One version of the Talmud, called the Jerusalem version, had 12 volumes. So when I downloaded that portion of the Talmud on the Sabbath, the English translation in PDF had 511 pages. I kid you not. Sabbath, or the Hebrew word is Shabbat. Sabbath was the most sacred symbol of the Jewish faith. Sacrifices, circumcision, which was the rite which marked the Jews from the non-Jews, the temple, all these concepts and all these practices had parallels in heathen cultures at the time of the Old Testament when, Jew, when, when, when Moses taught these rules and laws to the Israelites. But the Sabbath was unique. There was nothing like this among the heathen religions of the time. And it originated from God's creation in Genesis. We know the story well. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, the Bible tells us, He rested. And Sabbath was a reminder to the Jews of their former slavery in Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. God recognizes that man cannot work seven days a week. He needs to be refreshed. He needs to be recharged. So it was good. It was right. It was joyous. And it was a blessing for man to observe the Sabbath and take delight in the presence of God as we have done this morning. And that blessing is well described by the use of the word we saw earlier. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Or Sabbath peace. Sabbath peace. And by the time of Jesus, Sabbath observance was twisted by the Jewish leaders such that the blessing became a burden. Under the law of Moses, violation of the Sabbath was punishable by death. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Exodus 31. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from the people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath is to be put to death. That was the penalty for disobeying the Sabbath law. Death. History has it that it was because that the Jews in insisted on keeping the Sabbath that the Roman general Pompey was able to capture Jerusalem in AD 63. You know, in ancient warfare, it was, it was common, apparently, for the attacking army to erect a mound, a small hill, that overlooked the city under siege. And then from there, the attacker can bombard the city. And Pompey built this mound on the Sabbath days when the Jews simply looked on and refused to lift a finger to stop him. And reflecting on this incident, 
one, one Greek historian, I can't pronounce his name, huh, wrote, let me quote, there are a people called Jews who dwell in a city, the strongest of all cities, which the inhabitants called Jerusalem. And they are accustomed to rest on every seventh day, at which time they make no use of their arms, their weapons, nor meddle with husbandry, nor take care of any of the affairs of life, but spread out their hands in the holy places and pray until evening time. Now it came to pass that when Ptolemy, the son of Lagos, this is the general, Pompey, when, when, when Ptolemy, the son of Lagos, came into the city with his army, these men, these Jews, in observing this mad custom of theirs, instead of guarding the city, suffered the country to submit itself to a bitter lord. And their law was openly proved to have commanded a foolish practice. That's Old English, I guess. Translation, Old English translation. So it's a bit difficult to understand. But you caught the words, mad custom, foolish practice. And one which the Jews would observe even if it cost them their lives because Jerusalem fell to the attacks of the Romans. But for the Jews during the time of Jesus, their, their daily lives was not so dramatic as of being attacked by Roman soldiers. And in those, many, of those, many of the Jews were shepherds. So to stop, to stop predators such as wolves from attacking their sheep, these shepherds would dig pits, pits around the sheep pen, and into which the wolves would fall and be caught if they tried to attack sheep. But at the same time, the livestock and the sheep could sometimes fall into these same pits, these dugouts as well, by mistake. And the Sabbath laws of the time, as set out in the Mishnah and the Talmud, allowed a man whose sheep fell into a pit to carry food to the sheep on the Sabbath. Right? They can carry food to feed the sheep that fell in, but they were not allowed to rescue the same sheep. So, to rescue is work, but to feed is not, because we all got to eat, right? So feeding is not work, but rescuing a sheep that fell in is work. And likewise, the law has it that if a man falls very sick, it's okay to stop him from dying, but it's not okay to get him well again, although I really don't know how to make the difference between the two. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 14. Again, a Sabbath incident. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by her spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant, that's the same word, indignant that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. How ridiculous can you get? How ridiculous can you get? So the Jewish leaders were saying, in effect, cleaning, come back on Monday or Sunday, some other day, not on the Sabbath. No healing on the Sabbath. Go back to our text in Matthew chapter 12. What, what was Jesus' reaction to, to the Jewish leaders who posed that question? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? There's a parallel passage of this incident in Mark chapter 3 verse 5. 
uh, Mark chapter 3, sorry. And, 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 and verse 5 of this report by Mark, his version of the incident, tells us that Jesus, after the Jews asked that question, looked around, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. So, this is the real reason for Jesus being indignant. In another translation, this verse reads, I don't have it here on the slide, but just listen. And looking around them, sorry, and looking round at them with anger and sorrow at their obstinate stupidity. Looking at them with anger and sorrow at their obstinate stupidity. It's interesting that Mark is the only gospel writer who mentions this point. Jesus was angry. He was sorrowful. He was deeply distressed. But what was he angry and deeply distressed at? Not at being offended with having to wait a long time while other people got served with food like me. He was angry and distressed at their obstinate stupidity, their stubborn hearts. And in the face of suffering, this man with a twisted arm, right hand, all these learned religious leaders could do was to look blindly past the pain of their fellow Jew and tell Jesus, you cannot heal. Because to heal is to break the Sabbath law. Let's, let's pause for a moment and, and think about why, why these Jews were so obstinate, so stubborn, so blind to the need of this man. Why couldn't they see? Psalm 95, verses 7 to 9, 7 to 9 gives us the answer. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Psalmist here was referring to one incident during the Israelites' 40 years of wandering in the desert after they were freed from Egyptian slavery. If you refer to Exodus chapter 17, you don't have to look at it. I'm going to read out the passage to you. Verses 1 to 7, this is what was written in relation to the incident that is mentioned in Psalm 95. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the law to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, the water will come out for the people to drink. 
We are familiar with that story. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord and asked, is the Lord among us or not? Think about it. After all the miracles the Lord had done in delivering them from Egypt, from years of slavery, how he brought ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt and forced Pharaoh's hand to literally release and evict the Israelites. After all that had done, all they could do was to say, is the Lord among us or not? How can it be? How can it be? So for the Jewish leaders who confronted Jesus that day, their hearts were hardened. Even though miracles were done before their eyes, the miracles of healing, they simply refused to see like Israel at the time of Moses. They were so blinded by their self-righteousness and pride. I love this musical. Not sure how many of you have seen it. I must have watched the live performance probably twice. I watched the movie version, which stars Hugh Jackman, you know, Wolverine. Guy below. Last year, it was released last year. I think I watched the movie like three times and I bought this, the VCD as well. There's a character in the musical, or in this, in this uh, uh, story, Inspector Javert. Russell Crowe, the guy on top. If you read the book by Victor Hugo, the one who wrote the story behind the musical, you will learn that Javert, I think that's how they pronounce it, it's supposed to be French, was born in a prison around 1780. And his mother was a fortune teller and his father was a convict. In other words, a prisoner. So because of his family background, he felt condemned to stand outside normal society either as a criminal or as a policeman. So he chose to be a policeman and, and, and he became an effective enforcer of the law. This is how Victor Hugo describes him in, his, in the book. Javert, though frightful, had nothing ignoble about him. Property, sincerity, candor, conviction, the sense of duty are things which may become hideous when wrongly directed but which, even when hideous, remain grand. They have virtues which have only one vice. Error. They have virtues which have only one vice. Error. The Jewish leaders were a bit like that. No, actually, they were much worse than that. Huh? But let's give them a bit of credit. They were learned. They knew the law. They were just, they were upright, they had a strong sense of moral duty, strong sense of their calling as being special, religious leaders to the people. They were maybe, maybe even sincere. Unfortunately, they were sincerely wrong. So, my brothers and sisters, let us, let us all be very watchful not to commit this sin of hardening our hearts against God in self-righteousness, in pride, blinding ourselves to what God can do, what God is doing, 
and to the needs of those others around us. So we see the blindness of the Jews on one hand. On the other hand, we see also the burden, the burden of the Saviour. So what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Matthew offers a a shortened version of the incident, but both Mark and Luke records that Jesus tells the man with a withered right hand to stand up in front of everyone. It was probably a packed synagogue room. And Jesus was likely to be teaching and he would have stood on a lectern or podium like this with, with the scrolls of the Old Testament open before him. And he asked the Jews a question. The Jews posed a question to him and he responded with a question. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. How did the Jews respond to that? Well, again, Mark, very observant, made a comment. They kept silent. They were speechless. Jesus was saying to the Jewish leaders, you equate doing good deeds and healing the sick as work that the law does not allow. But your calculations are wrong. Your interpretation of the Sabbath law, notwithstanding the 500 over pages of it, your interpretation of the Sabbath law is flawed. Salah. Healing the sick, restoring someone to wholeness, is not work. It is doing good. And totally in harmony with this whole idea of the Sabbath. Remember the phrase, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. And Shabbat Shalom seeks to bring wholeness to broken lives. So look carefully what Jesus was saying to the Jews. Not if you see a sheep fall into a pit, but if you have a sheep and it falls into a pit, surely you will rescue the sheep on the Sabbath, even on the Sabbath, because it is your sheep. How much more if what falls into the pit is a man who is worth far, far more than sheep. You know, I like that phrase so much. How much more? How much more? Beautiful phrase. I, I went to search it in the scriptures and, uh, and in that version, in, in, that, in that manner in which it appears, how much more, in that translation, in the New International Version, I found it occurring at least 10 times in the NIV. At least 10 times. The New, the new International Version, the New Testament. And let me share with you some examples. Luke chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts, good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Luke chapter 12, verses 24 and 28. Consider the ravens. 
they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will He clothe you, you of little faith? Finally, Romans chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, the phrase again, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? So in contrast to the blindness of the Jews, Jesus' burden was to bring healing and wholeness to the man with the withered hand, and not to him only, but to all of us here with our broken lives. And he does so with generosity and extravagance that is so beautifully captured in this phrase, how much more? How much more? Our God is a generous Heavenly Father who exceeds all our expectations. He loves us beyond measure. We are important to Him beyond price. He poured out extravagantly all His gifts on us. His grace is exceedingly abundant. His salvation incomparably effective. How much more are we valuable than sheep? How much more will He supply all our needs? How much more will we be saved? And I can think of only one word to sum up that immense grace that He showered on us. That word is blessing with a capital B. Let me, let me close with a story that I read from one of um, Henry Nguyen. Um, he's, he's a Catholic writer. He's a Catholic priest. But he's one of the most famous spiritual writers of our time. He has passed away already a couple of years ago due to a heart attack. But he has written many books. And um, some of you are probably familiar with his writings. I know some of you also enjoy reading his books. And he's got this little book. I've got the cheap version. Uh, this one looks nice one, but it's a cheap one. Um, I think it was printed in India. Um, but it's, it's low cost, uh, and therefore I bought it. It's, it's, it's called Life of the Beloved, Spiritual Living in a Secular World. And he, he describes an incident, which let me just refer you to. This is what he says. Not long ago in my own community, I had a very personal experience of the power of a real blessing. Shortly before I started a prayer service in one of our houses, Janet, a handicapped member of our community, uh, just as an aside, Henry Nguyen uh, at one time spent quite a few years in a community in Switzerland called the Labri community. And this is a community of handicapped people, right? all handicapped people. So Janet was one of them. And, and so Janet said to me, Henry, can you give me a blessing? I responded in a somewhat automatic way by tracing with my thumb the sign of the cross on her forehead. Instead of being grateful, however, she protested vehemently, no, 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 that doesn't work. I want a real blessing. I suddenly became aware of the ritualistic quality of my response to a request and said, oh, I, I'm sorry. Let me give you a real blessing when we are all together for the prayer service. She nodded with a smile and I realized that something special was required of me. After the service, when about 30 people were sitting in a circle on the floor, I said, 
Janet has asked me for a special blessing. She feels that she needs that now. As I was saying this, I didn't know what Janet really wanted, but Janet didn't leave me in doubt for very long. As soon as I had said, Janet had asked me for a special blessing, she stood up and walked toward me. I was wearing a long white robe with ample sleeves, covering my hands as well as my arms. And spontaneously, Janet put her arms around me and put her head against my chest. Without thinking, I covered her with my sleeve so that she almost vanished in the folds of my robe. As we held each other, I said, Janet, I want you to know that you are God's beloved daughter. You are precious in God's eyes. Your beautiful smile, your kindness to the people in your house, and all the good things you do show us what a beautiful human being you are. Do not forget that Janet is handicapped. I know you feel a little low these days and that there is some sadness in your heart, but I want you to remember who you are, a very special person, deeply loved by God and all the people who are here with you. And it goes on to describe another one or two incidents. And Let me just um, end by quoting his reflection on the incident. That evening, I recognized the importance of blessing and being blessed and reclaimed it as a, cruise, as a true sign of the beloved. The blessings that we give to each other are expressions of the blessing that rests on us from all eternity. It is the deepest affirmation of our true self. It is not enough to be chosen. We also need an ongoing blessing that allows us to hear in an ever new way that we belong to a loving God who will never leave us alone but will remind us always that we are guided by love on every step of our lives. Can I invite the um, musicians to come forward, uh, Caleb and the rest of the team? And before we sing the closing song, let us reflect on what the Lord might have spoken to you this morning. You know, once when Jesus taught his disciples and the crowds that were around him, he, he used parables, he used parables to teach them. And on one occasion, after he spoke a parable, he actually quoted some verses from the book of Isaiah about the response of the people to his teaching. And he said, and he, he quoted from Isaiah, seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they neither hear nor understand. He wasn't referring to the Jewish leaders, but you could probably apply that same words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders of the time. Seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear nor understand. Brothers and sisters, let that not be our response to the Word of God or to His work among us. That we want to see we want to have the spiritual discernment to know the work of God, to know the Word of God in our lives and to be able to see the needs of other peoples around us when they are in trouble, when they are under oppression, when they are unwell, when they are broken like all of us were once. Let's all stand and sing this song together, Healing Grace.
Son, but delivered it up for us for our sins. Lord, we thank you and we marvel at how great and how extravagant, how beyond expectation and comprehension your grace and your blessing has been to us. How much more, how much more, Lord, we, we just fall at your feet in wonder and amazement at how you could love broken people like us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, as we leave this place, as we depart into the coming week, we ask that you would continue to guide us, keep us from the sin of spiritual blindness, from being unaware or ignorant of the needs of others around us, and from being unable to discern your word and your work in our lives and in the lives of other people. So depart us with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. 